Mr. Justice Sanford delivered the opinion of the court. Benjamin Gitlow was indicted in the Supreme Court of New York with three others for the statutory crime of criminal anarchy. He was separately tried, convicted, and sentenced to imprisonment. The judgment was affirmed by the Appellate Division and by the Court of Appeals. The case is here on writ of error to the Supreme Court, to which the record was remitted. Section 160. Criminal Anarchy Defined. Criminal anarchy is the doctrine that organized government should be overthrown by force or violence, or by assassination of the executive head or of any of the executive officials of government, or by any unlawful means. The advocacy of such doctrine, either by word of mouth or writing, is a felony. Section 161. Advocacy of Criminal Anarchy. Any person who, 1. By word of mouth or writing, advocates, advises, or teaches the duty, necessity, or propriety of overthrowing or overturning organized government by force or violence, or by assassination of the executive head, or of any of the executive officials of government, or by any unlawful means, or... 2. Prince publishes, edits, issues, or knowingly circulates, sells, distributes, or publicly displays any book, paper, document, or written or printed matter in any form containing or advocating, advising or teaching the doctrine that organized government should be overthrown by force, violence, or any unlawful means, is guilty of a felony and punishable by imprisonment or fine or both. The indictment was in two counts. The first charged that the defendant had advocated, advised, and taught the duty, necessity, and propriety of overthrowing and overturning organized government by force, violence, and unlawful means by certain writings therein set forth entitled The Left-Wing Manifesto. The second that he had printed, published, and knowingly circulated and distributed a certain paper called The Revolutionary Age, containing the writings set forth in the first count, advocating, advising, and teaching the doctrine that organized government should be overthrown by force, violence, and unlawful means. The following facts were established on the trial by undisputed evidence and admissions. The defendant is a member of the left-wing section of the Socialist Party, a dissenting branch or faction of that party formed in opposition to its dominant policy of moderate socialism. 
Membership is both open to aliens as well as citizens. The left-wing section was organized nationally at a conference in New York City in June 1919, attended by 90 delegates from 20 different states. The conference elected a national council, of which the defendant was a member, and left to it the adoption of a manifesto. This was published in the Revolutionary Age, the official organ of the left wing. The defendant was on the board of managers of the paper and was its business manager. He arranged for the printing of the paper and took to the printer the manuscript of the first issue, which contained the left-wing manifesto, and also a communist program and a program of the left-wing that had been adopted by the conference. 16,000 copies were printed, which were delivered at the premises in New York City, used as the office of the Revolutionary Age and the headquarters of the left-wing, and occupied by the defendant and other officials. These copies were paid for by the defendant as business manager of the paper. Employees at this office wrapped and mailed out copies of the paper under the defendant's direction, and copies were sold from this office. It was admitted that the defendant signed a card subscribing to the manifesto and program of the left wing, which all applicants were required to sign before being admitted to membership, that he went to different parts of the state to speak to branches of the Socialist Party about the principles of the left wing and advocated their adoption, and that he was responsible for the manifesto as it appeared, that he knew of the publication in a general way and he knew of its publication afterward and is responsible for its circulation. There was no evidence of any effect resulting from the publication and circulation of the manifesto. No witnesses were offered in behalf of the defendant. Extracts from the manifesto are set forth in the margin. Coupled with a review of the rise of socialism, it condemned the dominant moderate socialism for its recognition of the necessity of the democratic parliamentary state, repudiated its policy of introducing socialism by legislative measures, and advocated in plain and unequivocal language the necessity of accomplishing the communist revolution by a militant and revolutionary socialism based on the class struggle and mobilizing the power of the proletariat in action through mass industrial revolts developing into mass political strikes and revolutionary mass action for the purpose of conquering and destroying the parliamentary state and establishing in its place, through a revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, the system of communist socialism. The then-recent strikes in Seattle and Winnipeg were cited as instances of a development already verging on revolutionary action and suggestive of proletarian dictatorship, in which 
the strike workers were trying to usurp the functions of municipal government, and revolutionary socialism, it was urged, must use these mass industrial revolts to broaden the strike, make it general and militant, and develop it into mass political strikes and revolutionary mass action for the annihilation of the parliamentary state. At the outset of the trial, the defendant's counsel objected to the introduction of any evidence under the indictment on the grounds that, as a matter of law, the manifesto is not in contravention of the statute, and that the statute is in contravention of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. They also moved, at the close of the evidence, to dismiss the indictment and direct an acquittal on the grounds stated in the first objection to evidence, and again on the grounds that the indictment does not charge an offense and the evidence does not show an offense. These motions were also denied. The court, among other things, charged the jury in substance that they must determine what was the intent, purpose, and fair meaning of the manifesto, that its words must be taken in their ordinary meaning as they would be understood by people whom it might reach, that a mere statement or analysis of social and economic facts and historical incidents in the nature of an essay, accompanied by prophecy as to the future course of events, but with no teaching, advice, or advocacy of action, would not constitute advocacy, advice, or teaching of a doctrine for the overthrow of government within the meaning of the statute. That a mere statement that unlawful acts might accomplish such a purpose would be insufficient unless there was teaching, advising, and advocacy of employing such unlawful acts for the purpose of overthrowing government, and that if the jury had a reasonable doubt that the manifesto did teach, advocate, or advise the duty, necessity, or propriety of using unlawful means for the overthrowing of organized government, the defendant was entitled to an acquittal. The defendant's counsel submitted two requests to charge, which embodied in substance the statement that, to constitute criminal anarchy within the meaning of the statute, it was necessary that the language used or published should advocate, teach, or advise the duty, necessity, or propriety of doing some definite or immediate act or acts of force, violence, or unlawfulness directed toward the overthrowing of organized government. These were denied further than had been charged. Two other requests to charge embodied in substance the statement that, to constitute guilt, the language used or published must be reasonably and ordinarily calculated to incite certain persons to acts of force, violence, or unlawfulness, 
with the object of overthrowing organized government. These were also denied. The appellate division, after setting forth extracts from the manifesto and referring to the left-wing and communist programs published in the same issue of the Revolutionary Age, said, It is perfectly plain that the plan and purpose advocated contemplate the overthrow and destruction of the governments of the United States and of all the states, not by the free action of the majority of the people through the ballot box in electing representatives to authorize a change of government by amending or changing the Constitution, but by immediately organizing the industrial proletariat into militant socialist unions and at the earliest opportunity, through mass strike and force and violence, if necessary, compelling the government to cease to function, and then, through a proletarian dictatorship, taking charge of and appropriating all property and administering it and governing through such dictatorship until such time as the proletariat is permitted to administer and govern. The articles in question are not a discussion of ideas and theories. They advocate a doctrine deliberately determined upon and planned for militantly disseminating a propaganda advocating that it is the duty and necessity of the proletariat engaged in industrial pursuits to organize to such an extent that by massed strike, the wheels of government may ultimately be stopped and the government overthrown. The Court of Appeals held that the manifesto advocated the overthrow of this government by violence or by unlawful means. In one of the opinions representing the views of a majority of the court, it was said, It will be seen that this defendant, through the manifesto, advocated the destruction of the state and the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat, to advocate the commission of this conspiracy or action by mass strike whereby government is crippled, the administration of justice paralyzed, and the health, morals, and welfare of a community endangered and this for the purpose of bringing about a revolution in the state, is to advocate the overthrow of organized government by unlawful means. In the other, it was said, as we read this manifesto, we feel entirely clear that the jury were justified in rejecting the view that it was a mere academic and harmless discussion of the advantages of communism and advanced socialism, and in regarding it as a justification and advocacy of action by one class, which would destroy the rights of all other classes and overthrow the state itself by use of revolutionary mass strikes. It is true that there is no advocacy 
in specific terms of the use of force or violence. There was no need to be. Some things are so commonly incident to others that they do not need to be mentioned when the underlying purpose is described. And both the appellate division and the Court of Appeals held the statute constitutional. The specification of the errors relied on relates solely to the specific rulings of the trial court in the matters herein before set out. The correctness of the verdict is not questioned as the case was submitted to the jury. The sole contention here is essentially that, as there was no evidence of any concrete result flowing from the publication of the manifesto, or of circumstances showing the likelihood of such result, the statute, as construed and applied by the trial court, penalizes the mere utterance as such of doctrine having no quality of excitement without regard either to the circumstances of its utterance or to the likelihood of unlawful sequences. And that, as the exercise of the right of free expression with relation to government is only punishable in circumstances involving likelihood of substantive evil, the statute contravenes the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The argument in support of this contention rests primarily upon the following propositions. First, that the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment includes the liberty of speech and of the press. And second, that while liberty of expression is not absolute, it may be restrained only in circumstances where its exercise bears a causal relation with some substantive evil, consummated, attempted, or likely, and as the statute takes no account of circumstances, it unduly restrains this liberty and is therefore unconstitutional. The precise question presented and the only question which we can consider under this writ of error, then, is whether the statute, as construed and applied in this case by the state courts, deprived the defendant of his liberty of expression in violation of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The statute does not penalize the utterance or publication of abstract doctrine or academic discussion having no quality of incitement to any concrete action. It is not aimed against mere historical or philosophical essays. It does not restrain the advocacy of changes in the form of government by constitutional and lawful means. What it prohibits is language advocating, advising, or teaching the overthrow of organized government by unlawful means. These words imply urging to action. Advocacy is defined in the Century Dictionary as 1 the act of pleading for, supporting, or recommending, active espousal. It is not the abstract doctrine of overthrowing organized government by unlawful means which is denounced by the statute, but the advocacy of action for the accomplishment of that purpose. It was so construed and applied by the trial judge 
who specifically charged the jury that a mere grouping of historical events and a prophetic deduction from them would neither constitute advocacy, advice, or teaching of a doctrine for the overthrow of government by force, violence, or unlawful means. And if it were a mere essay on the subject, as suggested by counsel, based upon deductions from alleged historical events, with no teaching, advice, or advocacy of action, it would not constitute a violation of the statute. The manifesto, plainly, is neither the statement of abstract doctrine nor, as suggested by counsel, mere prediction that industrial disturbances and revolutionary mass strikes will result spontaneously in an inevitable process of evolution in the economic system. It advocates and urges, in fervent language, mass action which shall progressively foment industrial disturbances and, through political mass strikes and revolutionary mass action, overthrow and destroy organized parliamentary government. It concludes with a call to action in these words, quote, The proletariat revolution and the communist reconstruction of society, the struggle for these, is now indispensable. The communist international calls the proletariat of the world to the final struggle. This is not the expression of philosophical abstraction, the mere prediction of future events. It is the language of direct incitement, the means advocated for bringing about the destruction of organized parliamentary government, namely mass industrial revolts usurping the functions of municipal government, political mass strikes directed against the parliamentary state, and revolutionary mass action for its final destruction, necessarily imply the use of force and violence, and, in their essential nature, are inherently unlawful in a constitutional government of law and order. That the jury were warranted in finding that the manifesto advocated not merely the abstract doctrine of overthrowing organized government by force, violence, and unlawful means, but action to that end, is clear. For present purposes, we may and do assume that freedom of speech and of the press, which are protected by the First Amendment from abridgment by Congress, are among the fundamental personal rights and liberties protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from impairment by the state. We do not regard the incidental statement in Prudential Insurance v. Cheek that the 14th Amendment imposes no restrictions on the states concerning freedom of speech as determinative of this question. It is a fundamental principle long established that the freedom of speech and of the press, which is secured by the Constitution, does not confer an absolute right to speak or publish without responsibility whatever one may choose, or an unrestricted and unbridled license that gives immunity for every possible use of language 
and prevents the punishment of those who abuse this freedom. Reasonably limited, it was said by story in the passage cited, this freedom is an inestimable privilege in a free government. Without such limitation, it might become the scourge of the republic. That a state in the exercise of its police power may punish those who abuse this freedom by utterances inimical to the public welfare, tending to corrupt public morals, incite to crime, or disturb the public peace, is not open to question. Thus it was held by this court in the Fox case that a state may punish publications advocating and encouraging a breach of its criminal laws, and in the Gilbert case, that a state may punish utterances teaching or advocating that its citizens should not assist the United States in prosecuting or carrying on war with its public enemies. And, for yet more imperative reasons, a state may punish utterances endangering the foundations of organized government and threatening its overthrow by unlawful means. These imperil its own existence as a constitutional state. Freedom of speech and press, said Story, does not protect disturbances to the public peace or the attempt to subvert the government. It does not protect publications or teachings which tend to subvert or imperil the government or to impede or hinder it in the performance of its governmental duties. It does not protect publications prompting the overthrow of government by force, the punishment of those who publish articles which tend to destroy organized society being essential to the security of freedom and the stability of the state and a state may penalize utterances which openly advocate the overthrow of the representative and constitutional form of government of the United States and the several states by violence or other unlawful means. In short, this freedom does not deprive a state of the primary and essential right of self-preservation, which so long as human governments endure, they cannot be denied. In Toledo Newspaper Company v. United States, it was said, The safeguarding and fructification of free and constitutional institutions is the very basis and mainstay upon which the freedom of the press rests, and that freedom, therefore, does not and cannot be held to include the right virtually to destroy such institutions. By enacting the present statute, the state has determined through its legislative body that utterances advocating the overthrow of organized government by force, violence, and unlawful means are so inimical to the general welfare and involve such danger of substantive evil that they may be penalized in the exercise of its police power. That determination must be given great weight. Every presumption is to be indulged in favor of the validity of the statute, and the case is to be considered in the light of the principle 
that the state is primarily the judge of regulations required in the interest of public safety and welfare, and that its police statutes may only be declared unconstitutional where they are arbitrary or unreasonable attempts to exercise authority vested in the state in the public interest. That utterances inciting to the overthrow of organized government by unlawful means present a sufficient danger of substantive evil to bring their punishment within the range of legislative discretion is clear. Such utterances, by their very nature, involve danger to the public peace and to the security of the state. They threaten breaches of the peace and ultimate revolution, and the immediate danger is nonetheless real and substantial because the effect of a given utterance cannot be accurately foreseen. The state cannot reasonably be required to measure the danger from every such utterance in the nice balance of a jeweler's scale. A single revolutionary spark may kindle a fire that, smoldering for a time, may burst into a sweeping and destructive conflagration. It cannot be said that the state is acting arbitrarily or unreasonably when, in the exercise of its judgment as to the measures necessary to protect the public peace and safety, it seeks to extinguish the spark without waiting until it has enkindled the flame or blazed into the conflagration. It cannot reasonably be required to defer the adoption of measures for its own peace and safety until the revolutionary utterances lead to actual disturbances of the public peace or imminent and immediate danger of its own destruction, but it may, in the exercise of its judgment, suppress the threatened danger in its incipiency. In People v. Lloyd, it was aptly said, quote, Manifestly, the legislature has authority to forbid the advocacy of a doctrine designed and intended to overthrow the government without waiting until there is a present and imminent danger of the success of the plan advocated. If the state were compelled to wait until the apprehended danger became certain, then its right to protect itself would come into being simultaneously with the overthrow of the government, when there would be neither prosecuting officers nor courts for the enforcement of the law. We cannot hold that the present statute is an arbitrary or unreasonable exercise of the police power of the state, unwarrantably infringing the freedom of speech or press, and we must and do sustain its constitutionality. This being so, it may be applied to every utterance, not too trivial to be beneath the notice of the law, which is of such a character and used with such intent and purpose as to bring it within the prohibition of the statute. This principle is illustrated in Fox v. Washington, Abrams v. United States, Schaefer v. United States, Pierce v. United States, and Gilbert v. Minnesota. In other words, 
when the legislative body has determined generally in the constitutional exercise of its discretion that utterances of a certain kind involve such danger of substantive evil that they may be punished, the question whether any specific utterance coming within the prohibited class is likely, in and of itself, to bring about the substantive evil is not open to consideration. It is sufficient that the statute itself be constitutional and that the use of the language comes within its prohibition. It is clear that the question in such cases is entirely different from that involved in those cases where the statute merely prohibits certain acts involving the danger of substantive evil without any reference to language itself and is sought to apply its provisions to language used by the defendant for the purpose of bringing about the prohibited results. There, if it be contended that the statute cannot be applied to the language used by the defendant because of its protection by the freedom of speech or press, it must necessarily be found as an original question without any previous determination by the legislative body whether the specific language used involved such likelihood of bringing about the substantive evil as to deprive it of the constitutional protection. In such cases, it has been held that the general provisions of the statute may be constitutionally applied to the specific utterance of the defendant if its natural tendency and probable effect was to bring about the substantive evil which the legislative body might prevent. And the general statement in the Shank case that the question in every case is whether the words are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils upon which great reliance is placed in the defendant's argument, was manifestly intended, as shown by the context, to apply only in cases of this class and has no application to those like the present, where the legislative body itself has previously determined the danger of substantive evil arising from utterances of a specified character. The defendant's brief does not separately discuss any of the rulings of the trial court. It is only necessary to say that, applying the general rules already stated, we find that none of them involved any invasion of the constitutional rights of the defendant. It was not necessary, within the meaning of the statute, that the defendant should have advocated some definite or immediate act or acts of force, violence, or unlawfulness. It was sufficient if such acts were advocated in general terms, and it was not essential that their immediate execution should have been advocated. Nor was it necessary that the language should have been reasonably and ordinarily calculated to incite certain persons to acts of force, violence, or unlawfulness. The advocacy need not be addressed to specific persons. Thus, the publication and circulation of a newspaper article may be an encouragement or endeavor 
to persuade to murder, although not addressed to any person in particular. We need not enter upon a consideration of the English common law rule of seditious libel, or the Federal Sedition Act of 1798, to which reference is made in the defendant's brief. These are so unlike the present statute that we think the decisions under them cast no helpful light upon the questions here. And, finding, for the reason stated, that the statute is not, in itself, unconstitutional, and that it has not been applied in the present case in derogation of any constitutional right, the judgment of the Court of Appeals is affirmed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.